Welcome to Sony Music's Time to Talk. I'm your host, Sean Sennett. This week, it's a very big week for us. We've got Trent Dalton on the show. Now, you would know Trent from his um, first novel, Boy Swallows Universe. Now, this was probably the biggest splash in the literary world in Australia for probably 30 years, I'd say. It's won numerous awards. Now, just to give you some context about the very rare double that Trent achieved with Boy Swallows Universe, critical and commercial success, to get those things together is incredibly rare. It has sold over 450,000 copies, when 10,000 copies in Australia is usually seen as a hit. A TV series has been made, a play is underway, and he's got a brand new book that's just dropped called All Our Shimmering Skies. He's also, apart from being an award-winning journalist, he's a rabid music fan, a film buff. There's a certain magic realism in his work. There's a magic realism in his life. Positivity oozes out of him. He's a very, very uplifting person. And I was very pleased to be able to join him in his bunker where he actually writes so he'd just taken down a mood wall that he'd put together for All Our Shimmering Skies. So it's a blank canvas, and I think he's thinking about his next project. But we were lucky enough to sit down. We talk about books, talk about writing, his favorite films, his favorite actors, his favorite music. And uh, it really is a bit of a glimpse into the world and the mind, the wonderful, expansive mind of Trent Dalton. Here he is. Hey, Trent Dalton, how are you? Ah, oh, Sean, I'm really well, and uh, it's just an honor to be sitting down here in my little writing nook with uh, one of my all-time favourite rock and rollers and, and writers. I was just to say, it's such a blast for me to be here in your bat cave because this is where you wrote um, Boy Swallows Universe yeah. and it's where you've written All Our Shimmering Skies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of cool stuff has happened here and uh, Boy Swallows Universe was written here from like 8 till 10 at night, um, you know, in, in this sort of dim kind of lighting that I have down here and um, and it's become this kind of absolute bat cave yeah. and I and I and I think that's a really kind of um, great comparison because I try and transform when I do come down here and I try and become like it's really cool I don't want to get too deep on you but it's nice that you say that kind of I do try and become some version of myself that is kind of more heroic than I am upstairs. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, like wow. I try and actually put on a bit of a, a bat suit and kind of go, all right, mate, you are a half-decent writer. And, yeah. You know, so I think it's really cool to kind of think of it like that, that this kind of sanctuary yeah. where I can really be free and be honest and just let rip. And, you know, and I think that's kind of cool to think of a space like this, which is just a bunch of bricks and masonry and uh, some tiles uh, that make my backside hurt um, during the day. But, you know, it's it, – it's really special to me, this place, because it has given me those two books and that I never thought would, would be possible. So, you know. Obviously, it's remarkable what Boyce Wallace Universe achieved in terms of, you know, critical and commercial acclaim. Now, when you were writing the book, I understand that you had the idea in your head and you literally came to the computer for X amount of hours a day because you had a day job as well at that time and just wrote. There was no going back and editing at the end of the day or the next day. Is that right? Oh, mate, full soul cough. Um, that that book, I wrote it when I was um, 41 now. I wrote it when I was probably 39. And uh, so it took 38 years and plus one year to write. You know what I mean? I had to live mm -hmm. those 38 years. It was, you know, I just have no doubt whatsoever in my mind that if I can say this without sounding like a tosser, but I was put on this earth to write that book. And life 
made me write that book, you know, and, um, you know, it's, it's absolutely semi-autobiographical, about 50-50 sort of fact and fiction, that book. Some dark stuff and some really hopeful light stuff mm. as well. But, yeah, I just had it tinkering around and, and bouncing around in my head. And then when the time comes, it's absolutely just um, up, you know, my wife and I are watching telly and I'm just like, all right, it's time, you know, put the kids to bed. Now I've got to go down and slip inside the Dunlop volleys of this kid named Eli Bell that I created to help me navigate, you know, this crazy 1980s kind of Brisbane life that my brothers and I had led, which is so rich with storytelling. You know, there were so many downs, which is the downs of drug addiction and prison and mm. and so many ups, which are the ups of, you know, just the love of family. And I just had so many things to write about that and and hence this kind of, you know, thing I'm saying at the, at the top, which was about this idea of stepping into becoming someone else when you walk down here and in, into this room. And I genuinely did. You're right. It was basically go down, don't think about it. Like the minute I started, if I started thinking about that book, mate, I was done. You know, I would have questioned myself too much because I am at heart like deeply insecure. Mm. So it's like if I started thinking anything about what I was writing, which was deep, back of my brain type stuff that I was accessing. Yeah. And if I started to question it, I'd be I'd be history and I never would have gotten it done. So all I'd do, I'd go down and write until, you know, I'd already be tired from work because you're staring at that screen for eight hours anyway. And then, but I'd just give it these two hours, just really eight till 10, just go as hard as you can until the writing was drivel. And then, okay, that usually hit about 10 p.m., yeah go upstairs and then I'd hop in, in bed beside Fiona, my wife, and just sort of mull over what I'd just written. And sometimes I'd go, what the hell was that? You know, like, yeah. what am I writing here? And what am I putting together? And I genuinely believe I just got bullied around by the universe with that book. Like, I genuinely believe I just, it was the universe just kicking me around a bit and going, get back down there, write it, and don't think about it. And to the point where Fiona once like we we were like you know I was cooking dinner upstairs and and she said can I read can I read like the first bit mm. and I swear to god she she read the first line mm. and she started asking questions about it <laughs> it was about Slim Halliday and uh, she knew that I knew this key character Slim Halliday when I was a kid he was an ex con con and you know notorious prison escapee from the notorious Boggo Road prison she knew the whole family history with that guy which is you know all truth and all remarkable but the, she'd read the first line and it, and it was about Slim Halliday and and she started questioning something about it and I went and I got all queasy and I went no stop stop you gotta stop because the genie will come out of the bottle and I, I tell anyone don't let your creative genie out of the bottle try and just try and keep it hidden away for as long as you can and I was really glad that I did that if I think if I went around Brisbane telling people I was writing this novel I never would have gotten got finished it you know and it was sort of a really powerful case of just keep your little secret hidden for a little for as long as you can until that thing's ready to come out of the bottle and then just go hey look what i did what did eli bell teach you about trent dalton when you finished the book <laughs> oh, wow oh man that's a beautiful question um you know and i love that you sort of speak of him as a kind of almost a person who exists because he kind of does like yeah. i owe that kid so much um because he did show me that perhaps, um, well, you know what? He taught me that that stuff wasn't my destruction, that that he was there to show me that that stuff was actually the making of me, any of that dark stuff. And the book was, the book was written from a place of longing um, that I had 
when I was a kid. So let's say I miss my mum at certain stages in my life because I was feeling whatever, you know, just whatever. You're going through some stuff. And that's powerful stuff that I remember feeling. And it was written from those places. And Eli Bell, it took Eli Bell because he was so separate from me to show me that that stuff was actually good and and that that stuff was actually the gold in my life. And that was was the great inheritance, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like, Sometimes you think these things are curses, but they're not. You know, they're actually your they're actually your actual uh, your treasure. You know, and 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 Eli showed me that, and he showed me that um, there is an inherent kind of um, quest story. There's there's everything I love about storytelling was actually existing in my own life. You know, it was it took that kid to show me that the greatest characters aren't in the books that I have read as a kid and the films that I've watched as a kid, the greatest characters in my life were just outside my bedroom door. And, uh, you know, he, he just showed me this new, you know, I've always appreciated these extraordinary people who were always in my life, but I don't know, put it, that kid showed me how to look at these extraordinary people in a different kind of light and a different, with different eyes. And, and that was really powerful. And, and then, and then he, he, gave me the lasting reminder of the good stuff that's just upstairs from yeah. this room, you know, and yeah. that's just my wife and two kids, you know, like that's what that kid showed me because the whole book is all about getting to that moment. Eli has to go through all this crap, all this stuff, all this hard stuff to get to that good stuff, which is just walking around upstairs every day for me, you know. And when did you start, um, you know, percolating the idea of all our shimmering skies? Was that an idea you've carried around for a long time or is it something new to you? Uh, you know, this is this thing, like I'm saying, about this sort of being open to the universe and, and being open to it sort of kicking you around a bit and, mm. and following it. And I don't try and start, I realised, and I've only done this twice, so I don't want to seem like any expert by any stretch, but I didn't want to start my second book until I got the spine tingles. You know, the spine doesn't lie. Mm. And um, and I was mulling around, uh, you know, a hundred different ideas for, to, for my second book. Um, until I, well, I mean, it, I mean, it all comes from a pretty deep place. Like I lost, yeah, I lost my dad sort of a fair few years ago and, uh, but, but near enough to, for it to still be just gutting and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the whole of that loss is only gets deeper the more cool things that happen, the more that great things happen to Boy Swallows Universe, the hole gets deeper because my dear dad who taught me to read books mm. and taught me the power of language and the power of storytelling never got to see, you know, his kid, his youngest boy, Trent, wrote this bloody book that yeah. a lot of people seem to be into and, and you know, that would have made him so, so happy, Sean. Like, he would have been just so proud of that. And so that sort of... All through that kind of crazy Boy Swallows Universe journey, I, you know, I kept doing this thing, like bloody looking up to the sky, right? And um, and like deep, deep private conversations with the sky. And, yes. and that sounds a bit silly and a bit kind of nutty, but I would have these little private moments where I just go, can you believe this? Like, can you believe this, Dad? And, and mm. I'm not saying that anything, anyone talked back or anything, yeah. but I would get after I'd have these little silly bloody conversations with the sky, I would get this warm feeling inside me, right? So so, so even though it might be just my head playing tricks with me, can I still take the good feeling that I got from mm. that interaction? And, and then I got thinking, you know what? The things we say to the sky 
could well be some of the most important conversation we have. You know, you don't look up to the sky and talk about your grocery list. You're you're talking some heavy stuff if you're looking up to the sky. And I thought that's a pretty cool sacred transaction that I could explore. And and then um, I just got a bloody vision. I kind of sometimes think cinematically because I'm such a film lover. I got a vision of a Japanese fighter pilot falling from the sky. And uh, and I thought, that's cool. That's cool. And you know what? That that stems from my love of Darwin and my love of the, the of Darwin's mm. military history and its role in what I believe is, you know, pretty much the most kind of dramatic moment in Australian history, which was the bombing of Darwin. And, you know, my eldest brother, Joel, had a, had a son who was born in Darwin and, well, he was in the army and he kind of lived in Darwin for a bit. I'd visit Joel and, and sort of began a kind of a, a long-time uh, love of Darwin. And I'd be going back there. I've been going back and forth between Darwin and Brisbane for like 20 years and I just love the place. And, uh, and so there I'd, I'd explore. Each time I'd go, I'd explore Darwin's World War II history deeper and and I've, you know, real life history. There was a Japanese fighter pilot who, you know, had to kind of crash land in on Melville Island and and uh, you know uh, Australian soil, and was captured by Aboriginals and uh, and you know and taken back to the Allies. Just an extraordinary little moment in history. Well, well, okay. Well, then I thought, well, what if that guy, what if that Japanese fighter pilot, ran into two girls who were on the run and oh, wow. uh, and helped these two girls? And that's the story of all our shimmering skies. It's the story of a girl named Molly Hook who, you know, and and this is where we get back to my own past. You know, like it's just I can't stop writing about the stuff that's in the back of my yeah. head, and it's a story about legacy and and this kid. She's grown up in such a tough kind of environment in Darwin that she's come to believe that she's cursed and that her family's been cursed. And as the bombs drop, she's starting to feel that because of her own curses that she drew those bombs. You know, she can't see the bigger picture of, of wow. World War Two. She just feels it's all because of her. And uh, and as the bombs are falling, she, she runs into that beautiful, magical top-end wilderness to find the man that she believes has placed a curse on her family. And she... She will get that curse, um, you know, uh, removed or um, or she might even just have to end the life of the man who's put in the curse. And so that's the yarn. And then along the way, she, she meets this extraordinary Japanese fighter pilot and and a cantankerous actress. And, uh, and together this unlikely kind of trio get in, you know, a really amazing quest. And, and, I, and it's a story of gifts that fall from the sky curses we dig from the earth and the secrets we bury inside ourselves and uh but look mate it to be honest with you just well where we're down in the bunker here in my little writing nook it's still just me probably processing all of that stuff the same stuff that i was trying to process in boy swallows universe you know because that's yeah. that's what i'm here for man that's what i'm here for i realize so i'm kind of curious when you're writing something like that do you with a story as complex as uh, all our shimmering skies do you map the whole thing out from a to b in your head and then it's a case of finding a rhythm as a writer and then letting it all out yeah yeah for sure i mean this one this one had a perfect structure because I broke it down into four gifts that fall from the sky. First sky gift is a map. Second sky gift is a friend. Third sky gift is a miracle. Fourth sky gift is the end. So I just had this little, almost that little poem, just like that, just yeah. rattling. All right, that's my structure. Just keep it at that. Yeah. And if I hit those beats each time, go for it. And I, I need to know the beginning, the middle, and the end. And once I've got the end in particular, I knew exactly um, where that story was going to end. And it ends with somewhat of a twist. 
once I had that twist and you can work backwards from there and then fill wow. in your amazing quest from there and know where you're going and why you're going, like why you're on that journey and then listen to that bloody spine, man. Like it's yeah. that, I swear to God, just like go with that spine. And I remember telling the story to Fiona, to Fee, who you know well, um, you know, she was, oh, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, she was She was in the toilet, she was, you know, and the door was, toilet door was closed and I'm rattling this story to her, man. I'm just rattling this story. And then this happens and then this falls from the sky and then this and guess what happens at the end twist she comes out flushes the toilet comes out and she goes that's pretty freaking amazing and I was like <laughs> oh shit Fee really like really really and she's honest man she's hardcore she's like just she will let me know like she I, I've spent 20 years telling that woman my dumb story ideas and I've I have heard her so many times just go ah that one needs a bit of work that one needs a bit of work and uh, she's just my greatest um, supporter and my greatest critic, and uh, and she just loved that story. And then I was off, you know. And so once you've got that endorsement, because honestly, man, who cares if I don't know? It's like I like the story, and she likes the story. Yeah, all right, that's worth writing. You know, oh, absolutely. absolutely. You know, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, do you find that when you're writing a song and stuff? Like, it's like you know. Yeah, you ultimately want to write it for yourself, don't you? Then if other people like it, it's a massive bonus. That's right, right? Yeah, but it has to begin there. You know, you've got such a great cinematic way of writing. I know you love cinema. I was in the city yesterday in Brisbane. I looked up, there's the clock tower. (gasps) It's such a part now of your your work. I know you're part of the the storytellers exhibition there. Yeah, yeah. So I get the impression that maybe, you know, you were brought up between Brackenridge and Hollywood. Oh, that's so beautifully you know, said. Like, you would have watched a lot of movies growing up as a kid, right? They informed you in terms of your storytelling. Oh, well, incredibly so. That is the most profound thing. I was raised by – I was brought up in Brackenridge and Hollywood, I swear to God, man. I mean, I mean, Hollywood, all right, you know, not to get too dark or anything, but, you know, there's some bad shit going on some night and things are going down and there's bloody walls being broken bro- – Glass bottles being broken, holes are being put in the walls. But, man, you've always got Spielberg. You know, yeah. you've always got Hitchcock to go to. You've yeah. always got um, Bill Murray to run to. Oh. You've you've got bloody Michael J. Fox to run to, you know. And, and, I mean, I was as much raised by my wonderful three older brothers, my amazing dad and my amazing mum, as I was by Marty McFly. And uh, I learned... I learned just as much about being a decent human being and about being courageous mm. and about being brave and about overcoming hardship from Marty McFly than I, I don't know, man, than I might have done from Ernest Hemingway, you know? And, and it's like, wow. I, I, you know, and it's amazing you mentioned the Brisbane Town Hall. I mean, there was only one place to end that book, man, and it's, <laughs> and it's the clock tower. You know, I mean, and anyone who's seen Back to the Future will know why I did it, you know, and, and, but also Hitchcock told me to do that. You know, it was a lifetime of watching that guy's movies where everything has to end high, like geographically high, elevated, you know, it just raised the stakes. And, uh, and, and, you know, there's a reason why all those films and all those books end in high places. It's dramatic. And, and that's just in my DNA as a kind of a, from boyhood to teenage life that I kept going back to these just epic stories where uh, the stakes are raised and 
everything's at stake. Usually true love is at stake and, um, you know, just big stories. If you're going to write one of these stories, why not make it big and as big as you yeah. can? Even though my little thing was like the microcosm of Dara, Brackenridge, yeah. Queensland, Australia, doesn't mean you can't still go big in a storytelling sense. And, yeah, we're, we're better to end that story of Boy Swallows Universe than at my own little town hall that I would look up as a kid and picture Doc Brown bloody hanging from the freaking, you know, hands, you know? And how would Doc Brown get down from this place down to down to connect the freaking cables to get the bloody DeLorean back to 1985, you know? And, and it's just all in your head and you're just kind of drawing from all these places. Like, there's so much Back to the Future in that book, even though I never referenced that, yeah. that movie once in Boy Swallows Universe. It's just the DNA of that book and Eli Bell, oh man, there's so much Marty McFly and Eli Bell. It's that it's that just that exuberance that that beautiful man Michael J. Fox brought to Marty McFly, I tried to bring to Eli Bell. And I you know, there's no doubt about it. I tried to look at my life the way Michael J. Fox was in that movie. I mean, don't even get me started. I could go down the Back to the Future it, rabbit it, hole. It, it is as, like the perfect film, isn't it? That film inspired me. In my journalism, in you know, uh, you know, if if I'm writing, I know it sounds absurd, but the the way that that film is written inspires the way I write feature articles for the Weekend Australian magazine. Are Make you them kidding? Bloody wow. bloody watertight. In you what way? Not, well, mean, just it- structurally sound structurally unpredictable but structurally absolutely perfect in the sense Mm. of it had to go there Mm. even though you didn't know it was going there it had to go there right okay that's how you want your story to go man like like, so subconsciously unconsciously i'm telling myself to write like that and i just think that you know and david fincher taught me to be like that and just as much as geraldine brooks did you know what i mean it's that sort of sense where it's like they're my stephen king you know these people who could write a story and you go god man that's so amazing i didn't see that coming but it had to come bono talks about it in when he was writing one you know that song one obviously you know why he talks about it it the it's the sound of inevitability but you didn't even know you needed to hear that sound and yet it just feels so right, that sound. And I just love that in a storytelling sense, even though that's a musical version of that. Yeah. I love that in a writing sense or in a film sense when that happens. It's like, oh, my God, it what had a, to end that I mean, place. What, what a great song. Um, Uktum Baby, great oh. album. Yeah. Oh, I know, I know you're a music fan. What was the big bang for you musically? What really got you started? Oh, uh, well, what got – first, I remember it distinctly. Uh, for, for it was, Triple M – Back, it was probably FM 104 in the days yeah. of FM 104 yeah. in Queensland. It was called that. And uh, I remember it was Brackenridge Housing Commission. I remember I went in. My brother, Jesse, had a dual tape deck. I was just listening to the radio. Yeah. And they must have been doing four. They must have been a triple play or yeah. something. Yeah. And I heard Mean to Me followed by um, Now We're Getting Somewhere, followed by Don't Dream It's Over. And that, <laughs> off the first Crowded House record, that, as an eight-year-old to hear for me, <laughs> was absolutely groundbreaking. And then that led in just a complete, uh, you know, the basically my musical love began with the organ of Don't Dream It's Over. Like, I think the organ part of Don't Dream It's Over speaks to my soul more than perhaps any other piece of music ever made. And I think I have that, I mean, just quietly. Again, you know, there's all sorts of crazy stuff in your life at that age. 
But that freaking organ, man, that solved everything. Mitchell you know, Froome. Mitchell Froome. Is yeah. that who's doing that? Yeah. The producer. It's funny you mentioned Triple M or FM 104, whatever it was back in the day. Yeah. I meet people from Perth and they reference those stations as well because we didn't have Double J. We had Triple Z, obviously, but there was no Double J. I don't, so remember, I don't remember Triple J until like 92 yeah, it was or in the something. 90s, yes. Yeah. We had no Double J. So our... Uh, you know, if you liked alternative music, there was Triple Z, obviously. Yeah. But most people listen to, you know, FM 104. Oh, and yeah. uh, I think, too, we all owe a debt to Bill Reiner, the programmer there, because he would go deep playing album tracks. And I always think I got a lot of my knowledge of music from the important edition of Rolling Stone at the library at Griffith oh, University. Oh, hell yeah. And uh, all those Great six packs they play in Triple M. I can't believe you just, say that, man. Just because, burning through the C nineties, taking them. It. Oh, that's it. Yeah, well, exactly, and that's what I did. I'm rushing for my tapes, right? I'm yeah. rushing for my little um, Chandler's, my Chandler's um, blank tapes, and yeah. going bang, get this down. These songs are amazing. I remember hearing "No, Now We're Getting Somewhere" and jumping up and down on my bed, just going, "Push me back to the start." You know, now just the sheer exuberance, and you know, it's that. Again, it you know something I love, Sean, is enthusiasm. Like mm. I just I, I bore people to death with the importance mm. of enthusiasm, and and it's the same. You know what Marty McFly has enthusiasm. You know what Neil Finn has in Spades yeah. enthusiasm, and my other bloody rock and roll god, and it's a perfect extension is Eddie Vedder, and that guy lives his whole life with enthusiasm, and that guy more than anything. So you ask me, you ask me the musical, you know, I mean. Finn brought me into music, um, mm. and uh, but it's Eddie Vedder who held me there, and uh, you know held me with it. And it was ten, you know, it was like alive, just bloody. It was the story of my freaking life. Ten was the life, big record man. for you. Ten's the record. I mean, it's like Brackenridge, nineteen ninety two. Um, you know, it was my brother Joel who had it on cassette first. He oh, it never never lets me uh, hear the end of the fact that Joel was. The uh, the brother in the family who discovered Pearl Jam yeah. first, and then he passed the tape sort of benevolently to um to my brother Ben. Now you know what happened. I traded Out of Time and an Indonesian version of Out of Time, like a like a like a what do they call that? You know, in Bali. My mum got it from oh, Bali, yeah, like a bootleg tape, bootleg or something. tape of Out of Time by REM, and yes. uh, and she gave us all these tapes, and I got Out of Time, which I. Actually, an album I love so much yeah. now, but I, I sort of didn't get the nuances of REM yeah. back when I was a kid. But um, and I just begged Joel, "Hey, man, can I swap you out of time?" This oh, is what wow. happened, and he and he said, "Yeah." He didn't, even, you know, he's an REM fan, but not huge. And yeah. he's like, "Look, man, I just know you want this," and he just kindly gave me ten. And I must have played ten, you know, five times a day through the entire 1992, 93 until basically until Versus came out, and I could bum that off Troy Barron. I copied a blank tape. Just couldn't afford any freaking yeah. tapes at all or anything back in those days. And Alive, Alive, you know, still <laughs> is just the most profound kind of song because it that was a strange time in my life, man. I was like 12, 13, just kind of hating the world and kind of uh, – on the knife edge of becoming a real douchebag or or being someone who could lend something to the world and and I I believe I owe that band a lot for not going the other side I swear to god and I mean you cannot underestimate the power of that you know there's just no doubt about it I could look back and go there was about five or six influences who who kept me from becoming 
you know, going down the path that I perhaps wrote yeah. about in Boy Swallows Universe and, um, you know, and my brothers that I speak of are huge ones of that and my mom and my dad and, and the next is that band from Seattle. Like, it's just wow. crazy. I know, like, it's just, it's, I could not ever tell you how much that band mean, means to me. You, you've got a beautiful story about going to see them for the first time and obviously you weren't <laughs> flush with cash. Oh, yeah. Now, tell me how you raised yeah, the man, funds well, to go see them. Well, I assume um, it was the Entertainment Centre probably on, yeah, was on the, the first tour. It was the Entertainment Centre on the Vitalogy Tour, the first time they, you know, first tour to Australia. I mean, this is this is a groundbreaking moment for the kids of Brackenridge and Brighton um, on the northern suburbs of Brisbane. I mean, we were all right into obviously Nirvana and Chili Peppers, and you know, it was all that whole alternative, you know, sound. I, I mean, but particularly for me, and I, I, you know, I forced this stuff on my friends. You know, so I was just boring every single person at every party in yeah. Brackenridge. I'd be putting on those albums. It's like, Trent, enough with the Pearl Jam. Stop. We've heard this black song about freaking 20 times tonight. Shut up. We're going to, like, throw your tape away. And I'd be carrying around this stupid tape that Joel got me. I'd take it to parties and stuff. And, Have you still uh, got it? Is it here in the back cave? You know what, man? It's it, it would be out there in the storage. It's actually down near the hot water system. I swear to God, under the steps, there's a box called, like, it's, like, basically the Brackenridge box. Yeah. And it's got every trinket, every tape, every wow. bloody sacred little line that, Alison Hipwood wrote me in the school yearbook. Yeah. It's down there. I hope the whole water system never claps out and leaks <laughs> or something and ruins all that stuff. But uh, um, that that concert that they played, the, <laughs> Pearl Jam kindly kept their ticket prices down back in the day. It cost $36 to buy a ticket to go see Pearl Jam in 1995 at the Boonal Entertainment Centre, Brisbane's only real kind of concert venue back then. And uh, my best mate, Ben Hart's mum, Kathy. Um, jagged the tickets um, on the phone, called Ticket Tech, jagged them because it was very hard. It was only about 10,000 of those kicking around a wow, Brisbane yeah. ticket to that. And she said, you get me the money, I'll get the tickets because I know how to work. I didn't even know how to freaking book a ticket. Sure. Man. I don't know how to book a ticket. And I was like, holy shit, how do I make $36, right? Yeah. I, Dad only paid me 10 bucks to do the mowing. Yeah. I could I could mow the lawn. That might have gotten me 10 mm. I'm like, man, my my mum was seeing this fella, <laughs> and uh, and uh, he lived in Barden, and uh, and he had a mango tree in the back of his yeah. house, and I went, damn it, I'm gonna sell some freaking Queensland mangoes <laughs> to get my thirty six dollars to get into the Pearl Jam show. But this mango tree was pretty shit house. It was stringy. It was the, it wasn't even it wasn't Bowen. It wasn't even Kensington. These were some sort of hybrid alien mangoes that just like were kind of brown yeah. with a little flashes of green. Oh, and dear. I, I picked maybe 30 of these and I thought maybe I could sell them, you know, at almost a dollar a piece, I'd get 30, and then maybe I could beg dad for like the extra six bucks to, to go see Eddie and the boys. I lay these out, I do a sign, and I swear to God, man, I wrote a sign I said, and it said, mango sale, and then in fine pr- finer print, um, need $36 to go to Pearl Jam concert. And, uh, and man, it you know, I guess Pearl Jam were big, but no one really appreciated the Seattle sound as much as I did because no one was stopping. No one was stopping. And, uh, and I might have sold, I think I sold one or two with just people passes by and- and uh, but the cars were flying by, and and like it was sort of a, it was a busy road too, so it was hard to stop. It was on a hill. You didn't choose your locale. <laughs> the locale was idiotic. I should yeah. have changed the locale. And if I, it was on Ruin Road. And anyone who knows Brisbane knows very hard place to stop on <laughs> Ruin Road. And 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 
if I'd had any brains, I would have put that stall just outside the garage, which was down. There was a garage petrol station, which was just down the end of Ruin Road near the fish and chip shop there, which is quite a famous Brisbane fish and chip shop. And I would have gotten heaps of people just walking past and feeling sorry for me. Guess what happens? This guy, <laughs> this guy freaking comes walking up and he goes, mate, you're all over the place with this bloody mango stool. Your sign, you can't read it clearly enough. Your mango's are crap. Um, you can't stop on this bloody ruined road. But he goes, I'll buy all 30 of your mangoes. Oh, wow. And he goes, I want you to go to the Pearl Jam show. Wow. This freaking guy, man, I swear to God, he must have been flush with money, but he just must have been a music fan. Man, why am I getting teary? I'm getting teary yeah. just thinking about this, Sean, as I'm talking to you no, because it was just, it was in a different time. It was the just, kindness of strangers, huh? Oh, man, like the kindness of strangers. You're so right. You know, like it was so freaking beautiful. Just the stories. Like I said, I said, man, you don't know what that meant to me. Like, and don't even get me started on why I needed to see that band yeah. at that time in my life, man. Yeah. It's like you read Boy Swallows Universe. That'll tell you why I needed to see that band. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's all the shit going on in your life. Yeah. All the dark shit, right? But here's hope in the form of five guys from Seattle, you know? I know it sounds ridiculous. It probably just sounds stupid. But I tell you, man, that was everything to me. And so I go there. I give that money to Kathy Hart. Here's my freaking money. I got my money. Boom, Kathy Hart, Angel, Angel, who kind of another person who raised me, man. I was around Ben Hart's house with Kathy like every second day in the 90s and the later, in the 80s, all, all through it. And, um, you know, I thank her. She gets special thanks in my book, in my acknowledgements of my book. And it's like as much I'm thanking her for just getting me those tickets yeah. to that show as the million times she let me stay around her house. And, you know, me and my mates, Ben and Alara Cameron, we um we go off and we bloody go to the greatest concert wow. of all time ever put on at the Boondle, uh, only maybe challenged by the other four times they played Boondle. You know what it's like? Oh, yeah. You know, man. And so it was just, um, it was just huge to me. And, and, you know, rock and roll, I'd never heard played that loud. And, uh, you know, uh, well, I've been just really thrilled by a thing Eddie's been saying lately about concert going you know we're in covid right now and and you know maybe that's why i'm so bloody excited about telling that story it's so chuffed you talk about that band because you know eddie eddie had said this great thing i heard him on a podcast talking about this great thing about concert going and and uh and that this is a perfect example you know i i had a friend who a whole bunch of people from my high school who went to that concert as well and I had a friend who famously broke the barriers and ran onto a place where she shouldn't have been and Basically, you know, people going nuts in that concert. But Eddie says this beautiful thing about, you know, there's nothing like 10,000 people and he's seen 100,000 people in Rio do this. But, you know, in Brisbane, we only got 10,000 person crowds and 10,000 people agreeing on the fact Alive is the greatest rock and roll song of all time is a pretty powerful moment to be in. You know, 10,000 people and we're in such divided times and, you know, that's why I love rock and roll, man. It's just, it's it's something we can always agree on. That, oh, yeah. You know, and, and I think, I think Eddie is the defining voice of the last 30 years in rock. Don't oh, you think? stop, stop. He's the most influential, I think. <laughs> oh, you know, I think so. I think so. And, and you know, I'm so biased, but it's like I, I think in the sense of being true and being and maintaining your truth for yeah. so long and um, it's it's been one of the more um, inspiring pop cultural kind of um, – uh, guidebooks that I've ever followed, you know, and and he's he's a guy that has maintained his like utter humility um, despite his 
brilliance and uh you know i just i've just learned so much from that dude and and you know he and no doubt about the honesty that he put in that album 10 influenced boy swallows universe there's no doubt about it it's like what do you got to say what what are you here to say you know what eddie was here to say in the 90s was the story of him not knowing his old man mm. and thinking someone else was his dad. That's what he had to say at that mm. time. And, and what he had to say with such kind of beautiful honesty spoke to that 12-year-old kid, Trent Dalton, in Brackenridge, Queensland, Australia. Yeah. And I, I'm so grateful that he gave that. And, man, when I sat down to write that book, and it does get back, sorry, in this long-winded way to that great question you asked, like, how did you just do that at night, come down and cough that up? Yeah. Well. Well, man, that's what I'm here to say. If yeah. I had something to say, it might be me trying to say it to some kid who's in Housing Commission Brisbane and he hasn't heard the Seattle sound between 92 and 98. Well, look, this is this is it in book book form. And, and you know, there's there's great musicians speaking to that kid probably now, but maybe, maybe, man, maybe. Yeah. What if that kid picks up Boy Swallows Universe and just for one, just one kid might just go, oh, man, that's what, that's what it feels like, yeah. you know? And I just, cause, cause that's what music, that's what the best musicians for me were telling me back then. It's like, oh, I get you. I understand you. Uh, that's what it feels like. And, you know, I think that's a very powerful thing and hence the importance of art. You know, it's yeah. like, you know, in COVID times, arts, arts had a hard time, but God, man, you know, ultimately uh, is actually the most important thing in our lives. It just takes us so long to get to it and appreciate it because so many things occupy our time and so many things have to take precedence. But, geez, man, yeah, art and that band and, and, and rock and roll has just been, you know, one of the greatest little things in my life. Hey, I uh, brought you a present. I went to the shops yesterday and I found oh, this. Stop. Stop <laughs> it. I'm just giving Trent you, a copy of... Uh, you- you didn't. The Once Upon a Time <gasps> Hollywood soundtrack on vinyl. Oh my God, Sean Sennett. Which looks a million bucks. I'm holding, I'm holding a vinyl original motion picture soundtrack to Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Man, I could, I'm, I've got tears in my eyes. Oh my God, this is just beautiful. This is a work of art. It Sean. is a work of art. It's, it's amazing. I mean, this, it, it, there's a poster in there. <laughs> <laughs> everything, but Ga- I want, gatefold I'm, double LP with inner sleeves. Oh my god, Sean, this yeah. is so beautiful. It, it, it is. It's a beautiful piece of art. But I, I, which I, I brought this along. You love music and you love films, obviously. What does Tarantino mean to you? Well, are you a fan? I'm. I'm quite an obsessive fan, as you know. You, you beautiful human being. Um, I mean. At the same time, you know, of 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 the same time as ten tens coming out, same time that guy's bringing out Reservoir Dogs, and that guy's bringing out, you know, the same time Versus is coming out and No Codes coming out, that guy's bringing out Pulp Fiction, mm. and at the same time Yields coming out, that guy's bringing out Jackie Brown, and uh, you know, so you know, what a time to be alive, and what a time to look at someone and someone's ability to tell a story. And uh, so just the way that that Ben Pearl Jam has kind of been with me all my life, that guy has been with me all my, of my adult life, Tarantino, just offering up these edgy, strange, um, incredible, um, just, you know, um, genre-flipping, genre-mashing, genre-tributing um, films. And, and, and as you know, you know, I've 
talk to you ad nauseum about my love of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because at I'm 41 now, that guy, like a fine wine, has put out, you know, has is just giving me stories that are, I think mm. this is his masterpiece. Yeah, I the do too. The soundtrack yeah. we, we hold in our hands. I thought that film was so beautifully told and expressed and so patiently given to the world. And the soundtrack to that, to that film um, is the perfect sort of synthesis of everything that film's about. And, uh, and, man, I mean, I can't even tell you what that guy means to me and how every time I sit down to write anything – you know, it's genuinely just muscle up, you know, mm-hmm. and give it, give it, approach it the way Tarantino approaches his stuff, which is, which is don't accept your second best. You know what I mean? Like that dude will just never accept his own second best. Hence why I love what he's doing. He's just like quitting at 10 and I hope he doesn't, but it's so him because he's like, yeah, I don't know whether I can give everything like I do yeah. every day of my filmmaking life, you know, and I just, I get that and yeah, it's just so, remarkable. So in terms of your process as a writer, when is something finished? Did you, you, obviously you do, I assume you do a draft of the book and then you go back and you make a few changes, I would imagine. Is there much heavy duty shuffling uh, once that first draft is done? Yeah, yeah. Like in, in all our shimmering skies, definitely, you know, and, and, I'm a firm believer in finding yourself a really good editor and listening to them. You know, just never um, think that a draft or that a feature story or that a, anything that you've you've done can't be made better with yeah. the help of someone who's read a thousand more books than you have. You yeah. know, and um, you know, I've got this amazing editor named Catherine Milne on All Our Streaming Skies who looks at that and goes, "Trent, my." My great kind of thing um, that I love is just like I'm talking about these soul coughs. You know, I, I genuinely believe a story is written and your first draft should be written with the heart. Nothing. Don't even bring the head in until the heart's done that first draft. Like write with the heart, edit with the head. You know, bring only bring your brain in until that heart draft, that muscle draft is done. And um, so it's in that head draft though, that brain draft that you can start tinkering with it and start taking on the advice mm. of better people than you. And uh, and yeah, just all through the, All Ashram Skies was a great example of just a couple of places where Catherine looked at it and went, man, like she was really so sweet. Like, you know, I remember handing it in about September or October or so last year and um and you know she sends these amazing. She sends a great email, my editor Catherine Mill, and she'll send you. She'll send you an email that puts you, you know, six feet above the moon. And and uh, and she just said. And I remember I was we're going over to <laughs> we're going over to like places like L.A. so I could walk around like a douchebag and see all the spots that Tarantino <laughs> filmed this film. And uh, we, my wife and I, Sean, I swear to God, we dragged our kids around. And we did a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood tour. It's so embarrassing. But uh, our kids were like, can we stop walking around Los Angeles looking for the Musso and Frank restaurant? Can we just stop doing this? Or um, can we stop walking around LA looking for the El Coyote restaurant? It's so embarrassing. It's almost embarrassing to say in public, but it was so fun. Around that time, Catherine Mill sent me this email just going, Trent, what the hell have you done? Like, what is this thing you've written? so exciting to get an email oh, like wow. that 
But just because she says that doesn't mean the work ends. Yeah, it is a movable feast. And, mate, to be honest, I handed that in in October. We didn't stop tinkering with it. Myself, Catherine, and this amazing editor, Scott Forbes, who, who did Boyce Willis Universe as well, who's really just a, you know, he's just like microscopic. He will just take it and yeah. go, all right, this could be better here and this word here isn't right. Literally down to letters and and commas and, you know, that fine-tuned, finely tuned and that gets me excited. So, yeah, I just feel like it's never finished. But for me, I know a story's finished when I'm talking in the broad sense, you know, like it's like did you hit exactly that place that gave you the chill back in the day, like the, the reason that you started and are you getting chills, you know, in the writing of it. And I swear, man, I finished this book not to sound, forgive me if I sound like a wanker, but like, you know, this character Molly Hook in this book I love, right? you got to understand, she's kind of an amalgam of my two daughters, Beth oh, and Sylvie. Wow. So, like, I really deeply love her. Like, my daughter Sylvie, um, you know, she went to school and all these teachers were, like, talking about this book, Boy Swallows Universe. And I remember she came from... This Boy Swallows Universe is tough. Like, it sort of involves my daughter's, you know, her grandma, that, yes. that girl's grandma, yes. right, who comes to Grandparents' Day. Yes. And, uh, you know, and, and people talk about that book to her. And, and she came home one day and she said, Dad, you wrote a book about two beautiful boys. Um, you know, oh. have you ever thought about writing a book about two beautiful wow. girls? Like, you're a father of girls. Why haven't you read a book, written a book about two girls? And I'm like, all right, damn it. And that, it, like, the book is essentially, I talk about, the character of Yukio, this fallen Japanese fighter pilot in that story, but it's really a story of these two girls, Molly and Greta, going on this adventure, and it's really Beth and Sylvie, man, no doubt about it. Oh, so wow. you imagine anything that happens to those two characters as I'm yeah, riding them. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. like really invested, and uh, and so I think an ending point for that story was, and you know you can kind of send it off, like I was crying, man, at the back end. I was crying. Like I was. If you're crying oh. over your keyboard, you know, for wow. me, like just letting rip. Like man, and I don't know. It was just pent up kind of drama that I'd taken these characters through, and I was just writing this real kind of hopefully beautiful and poignant scene in the back end of that book. But if I'm crying, man, and and I'm like, okay, that oh might tell me something. Then hopefully the reader might be there as well. Yeah. If I'm know every inside and out of that story, but I don't know. No, you know, I mean, maybe that's just back slapping nonsense, but it's like, I just, you know, you know, when you know, and like I'm saying, the spine doesn't lie and, and you sort of know when you're onto something. And so that's, what, I mean, to, in answer to your question, like I, I really try and finish when I'm like, yeah, all right, you, you got there, Trent, like you did it. You yeah. got somewhere close and sometimes even further than where you thought you had started. Now I really finished that story on Shimmering Skies and went, holy moly, like that, that just got cooler than I thought, you know, and I'm so satisfied with that. I just go, well, that's great. No matter what people think, I just go, you know what? That story went to places I didn't think I could take it. And you know what? I, I found out I could. And that's a really gratifying thing. It's like just to find out that you can do it, man, because I'm just terrified of just going, God, man, I've only done this once before. So it's like, you know. You know, when you, I don't know, I'm sure, you know, the first song you wrote and then we would come back to do it a second time. You know, I just, I get so excited at getting, trying to improve at this thing. You know, yeah, I get so yeah. excited about that. I feel like I'm just starting out in it and I'm really excited about the future. But well, the anyway. amazing thing for me, uh, admiring your work is it's being picked up for uh, television. Uh, there's a stage play at Boyce Wells Universe, but you actually have a day job writing for a living. So to be able to focus, 
with that, what you need when you come home to then write a book. Was it like a year in the writing, uh, the All Our Shimmering Skies? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know what? I mean, the great luxury of All Our Shimmering Skies, I mean, a lot of it was still done while I was working, but I, I, I had about – I had six months long service leave yeah. from the Weekend Oz Mag, which is oh, so kind of my, in my then, day job. Right. And I split that though. So I sort of split it up. So I, sorry, I had three months long service leave and I kind of, you know, took it at half pay, split it up, kind of was able to kind of just extend it a bit. And so there was a period there for three months where all I was doing was working on that book, mate. Yeah. And it was a revelation. Like it was, you got to understand like anything creative I've ever done it's just been at night time when I'm tired and or a Saturday or on holidays, like school holidays yeah. or, you know, or we're at bloody burly heads and on a family holiday and I'm there banging out some script I was trying to write or something, you know. And so it's like just trying to squeeze it in, but just to sort of do it in the way, you know, I'd imagine Tim Winton does it or the, I don't know, who you know, whoever, all these great writers in Australia who get to... I don't know. I would imagine I, that's their day job. And, and yeah. that was a revelation to me to kind of, I'd, I'd wake up, I'd go for a jog down this path just down here and and um, and then I'd come back and have like a boiled egg on avocado on toast and I'd, I'd make a coffee and I'd just come down those stairs just there, walk into this very room and just write, mate, for like, you know, a good, basically until school pickup, like 3 p.m. And, wow. and then it was like this, this incredible privilege and and then the privilege of that because you got to understand you realize how all of that is just a rug that could be taken away so man yeah. I, like i never and all of the past and all of that stuff and it's probably ridiculous but it never allows me to think this is just a gift that that is mine or that i'm worthy of it or that i'm deserving of it or that it's going to stick around and so you better bloody right man just right you know and and then you know because yeah, all of that stuff is a great momentum as well. And, and uh, yeah, and so it, it, that was just a really special thing. But totally, Boyswell's universe was just here and there, every, you know, and hence why the book actually reads like it's urgent. It's urgent. And I just went with that because, mate, I've only got two hours before I tie yeah. or I've only got two hours before I have to drive the kids to dance. Okay. Yes smash it out cough it up and you know so it's it's really funny to write the most darkest things about domestic violence or want us wanting to see your mum in prison or 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 pain and loss and then oh okay honey i'll drop you up to uh to mm. show dance to go go to the dance but you just got to do that you know you know a lot of songwriters i talk to they're all keeping notes on their phones or little voice memos yeah, and things yeah. are you a note taker or do you tend to store it upstairs Oh, completely. Like all of – I was about to just get – I won't leave the recording, but I've got through there is an under-house place filled with just tubs that just say Trent scripts or Trent book notes. And yeah. they're just folders, man. I've got I've got 40 of them by now and they're wow. just filled just with just notes and little little um, ideas and thoughts because you just got to get them down. And, and, and you know what I've been doing lately though um, – they're for nothing, those things, if you don't go back and read them. And I think it's really yeah. important because you wouldn't believe the things. I swear to God, I have I have written things yeah. down in a notepad in like 2003. Yeah. And that thing got turned into somebody else's movie in 2010. Oh, wow. And I go, kidding. I had that damn idea, man, in 2003. Yeah, I swear yeah. to God, that's happened like three times where I'm just going, oh, my God, they made a movie out of that. And oh, it's really wow. cool. But it's just validation that you go like, oh, well, at You're least I know. Shared discovery, the scientists call it, apparently. 
I love that. Yeah. I love yeah. that. You're That's doing it independently of somebody else. Hey, listen, every time you and I get, get together for a, a coffee or a chat or whatever, which is, you know, regularly, which yeah, I, I yeah. enjoy. It's like one of my all-time favourite things. We always come back to one subject. <laughs> yes. Tom Hanks. <laughs> we've got to spend, we, we've got we spend five minutes talking about Tom Hanks before we wrap up the podcast. Well, I'm really I'm really glad you went there. Yeah, I'm really glad you went there. Um, <laughs> he's, a, he's a really important figure in my life, and I know we love – discussing well look the particular journey of you know look i mean he he had the greatest movie decade of all time i'm i'm convinced well we've um, spoken at great length about the streak haven't we the streak i mean he's he's he's, he's got the the greatest ever since about big to yeah. cast away it's yeah. it's pretty much the greatest hot streak of any yeah. film actor in you know movie history as far as i'm concerned but um no, um talking to hanks i i just had um you know, I think about that guy too much, maybe. But uh, I had the weirdest dream about Tom Hanks. Well, you got to tell me what was the well, dream. <laughs> my eldest daughter Beth and I were knocking on this door in the suburbs, right? And maybe it's even just Queensland. I think it's Queensland, and uh, I don't know whether this is because Hanks had been in Queensland, yeah, filming that you know Elvis movie that I yes. hope gets made. Um, and this man opens the door, and it's Tom Hanks. And he's like, hey, Trent, Beth, come on in. And I'm like, oh, Tom, do you mind? And and, and Beth's really excited because I've told her about the hot streak. I've told her about all the films. And what she's period seen Hanks a is this? Of, is this contemporary Hanks? It's or is contemporary, it- but like just 10 years ago. It's right? not okay. quite what he looks like yeah. in that Greyhound movie. He, It's Hanks in Captain Phillips, basically. Right, gotcha. It's sort of Captain Phillips era yeah. Hanks. And he says, come on in. And- and the whole first half of this house is is pristine and beautiful. And then he goes, "Guys, I want to show you something." And we and we go we go walking into the second half of half of Tom Hanks's house, right? And in this second half is where Tom Hanks becomes an oil painter. Wow. And it's and it's where unbeknownst to me and Beth, he starts to tell us, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm 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 an oil painter." And he's got these massive canvases, right, in this second half of his house. But they get progressively dark as you go through the house. Wow. So they start off almost like uh, that thing you do. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, vibrance. Vibrance. And they get to basically um, he's just lost Wilson kind of darkness. And and they get really, really dark. And I'm I'm looking at these canvases and I have to sort of say, Oh Beth, don't look at this one. Wow. And I'm looking at Tom Hanks and I'm like, Tom, you're Tom Hanks, what are you doing, man? You can't I can't show this to my kid. Like these canvases are just they're like um they look like um Gleason, I don't know if you know the artist Gleason, this James Gleason. I think it's James Gleason. He, I'm a real fan of his artworks and these sort of Hieronymus Bosch. Yeah, they're Bosch. Yeah, right. Yeah. They're, they're Bosch wow. type. And it's, and it's as if Tom Hanks, nicest guy in America, nicest guy on the planet, has gone. And I, I think he even says it to me in the dream. It's like, why can't I do this? And, and I'm like, wow, you're right. Why, why does Tom Hanks yeah. – and it's me and my – it's like, why can't I let Tom Hanks have a moment of darkness? Yeah. And and in the dream, and I have to explain to Beth, it's like, oh, he's just human. He's just a man of deep complexity. And why wouldn't he have these darker aspects that he has to keep in the whole second half of the house? And I think maybe Fiona and I had just watched that beautiful day in the neighbourhood. I love that film. And, and I think – 
I'm thinking about the journo in that movie mm. who is kind of in that movie that guy's going um he wants the darkness. Ro- is Rogers was it Rogers the guy? Yeah, Mr. Yeah, Rogers. Mr. Yeah. Rogers. He he he's thinking oh there has to be a darker side to this guy. Maybe this is yeah. where I'm just I'm honestly this these revelations come to me of this dream. Look, analyze dreams at our peril, but you know, it's ridiculous to analyze them. But maybe if I'm to go there and maybe that's like my journal life where I'm always looking for these darker shades to people and this kind of complexity because that's look i mean to be honest man that's all i've ever done as a journal has gone into people's living rooms and tried to ask them about the light and shade of their lives because i'm trying to work out the bloody light and shade of my life but why am i doing that with tom hanks you know it's interesting um tom hanks is a writer is it typewriter the book? I think it's called. Uncommon His type. Uncommon, Uncommon type. type. There are two stories in there. If he never made one film and he wrote those two stories, you'd be like, wow, this guy made a mark. If, fantastic. If, if all Tom Hanks ever did was write that World War Two, The World War Two stories, amazing, yeah. Christmas in yeah. the 50s, 60s, that incredibly poignant story mm. of that man visiting his, his veteran buddy and – going to sleep with the memories of the battlefield. Mm. Tom Hanks, man. I mean, if all he gave us was that short story. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but that guy, you know what? That guy gave us Splash still. And yeah. then that guy gave us Big and then he gave us bloody Castaway. And, oh, man, don't even get me started. Apollo I 13. I know. Let's hope Hanks hears this podcast and comes <laughs> on Trent. We'll both interview him together. You, so. You, What's next? You remind me of Tom Hanks. That's, That's the truth. What period? That might be why. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Phillips. Captain Phillips. No, no you're way pre, man. You, you remind uh, me you've got male Tom Hanks. Oh, I, I take that. I take that. I do sometimes feel like the guy in the um, fellow being whisked off by Somalian pirates, though. <laughs> <laughs> so what's next for you, Trent Dom? <laughs> Oh, I'm working on the structure of my third book. Yeah, that's my um, that's and that's absolutely joyous. And I've just cracked it. I just swear to God, like last week, and I got that. Oh, tingle, you have. I got that tingle down the spine, and uh, and I was, you know, I've been going back through all these note, all these notepads say all this funny stuff. Like, what about a prequel to Romeo and Juliet? Or it's just nonsense in these things, right? And then Rick Dalton's neighbor. <laughs> Rick Dalton's neighbor. <laughs> Neighbor to neighbor to neighbor. It's like, oh, that'd be amazing, actually. That would be an amazing story. But uh, this one just came. And, well, actually, this one was an amalgam of, like, a whole bunch of thoughts. And uh, and then you, you hit on it, and, and it feels really good, and I'm ready to write. You know, so I'm, that's, kind of the, that's kind of the next bit, mate. And so down here, mate, back down here, back down here for another whole period of time and just seeing how I go and, you know, seeing, seeing if I um, – Seeing if I fail and and uh, and seeing if I don't fail and that's really great. That's a really exciting kind of place to be in, and you just got to go for it and just. I'll give it hundred and ten percent and just swing for the fence like I try and always do and and see how I go and uh, you know. But uh, yeah, that's that's the joy of it. Trent, thanks so much for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. I, I can't wait to get my hands on a finished copy of All Our Shimmering Skies, and um, uh, that first book. You know, it's a masterpiece. I'm sure the second one is too. Oh, Sean, um, man, it's just an honour to be talking to the great Sean Senna and uh, man and Dan here with you. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time and just being freaking the Tom Hanks of Australian rock and roll <laughs> journos. Good on you, Trent. We'll see you next time. 
Ah, thanks to Trent Dalton. What a great thing to have Trent on the show. Uh, Just a wonderful guy, an amazing writer. And as I said at the beginning of the show, his new book, All Our Shimmering Skies, is out now. Thanks for spending some time with us today. And if you get a chance, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a rating. And we'll see you back here very soon on Sony Music's Time to Talk. I'm Sean Sennett. We'll catch you next time.